thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up for a Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Cindy O'Meara. And oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Guys, honestly, this is going to be one of those podcasts that you're going to have to drop everything and pay attention to. Once again, our Cindy has come through with the goodies. We've got two amazing women on our show today. We've got um, the beautiful Jane London and also Lisa Byrne. Now, both of these women are absolute powerhouses. I'm looking at their bios. I've met them just a moment ago before we started the show. And what is really exciting is to see that there are so many conscious women in leadership that are working, I guess, in a quest to bring health and well-being to the community. And these two incredible women work for an organization called NPS Medicine Wise. Now, that's a prof- that's a not-for-profit, um, independent organization, and it works in the quality use of medicines. So today's conversation is actually going to be really, really interesting because we've always had conversations that are more around, um, you know, how nature supports the dynamic of, of human function. And so I'm really, really keen to dive into today's conversation, looking at how our medicines are, you know, how, how we can apply our medicines to work synergistically with our bodies. And I love what these two girls are bringing to today's show because they're actually involved in the testing and the measuring of this. So welcome to today's show, girls. This is going to be an exceptional conversation and what a treat to have you both here. Thank you very much. Cheers. Good to be here. Oh, you are most welcome. Cindy, you discovered these two gorgeous creatures. How did you happen across their paths? Uh, Well, we had our summit a couple of, um, I'm going to say months ago. By the time this goes to air, it will be a couple of months ago. And uh, Lisa is one of the graduates from the Nutrition Academy. And she came up to me and talked to me about what she was doing and I was absolutely blown away that that was that what even what she was doing is out there and being done. In actual fact, this morning I was speaking to one of my medical doctor friends and I was telling him who I was interviewing today, and um, he actually went, "That's a good thing. It's a good thing what they're doing because we need to become accountable." Um, sometimes we get a bit lax, Daisy. He is in emergency medicine, so he's not necessarily a prescriber of these. But I found. Um, Lisa doing that and then you know we spoke quite a few times Lisa and I and Lisa felt that it was really important that Jane so Lisa's the one with the Irish accent and um, but she said let's bring Jane on the call as well so we can uh, describe what this is all about so first of all Lisa let me ask you a question how you explain to me what this company does is what I'd like you to explain to um, our listeners Sure. Um, so just before I do that, Cindy, just to clarify, I haven't actually graduated yet from the academy, so I'm still studying with you, um, which I'm loving, by the way. Um, but in regards to NPS Medicine Wise, so essentially what we do is we deliver um, 
educational programs and information to health professionals to really improve the health outcomes for Australians. And that's really what in NPS uh, Medicine Wise aims to do. So the consumer is really at the center of everything we do. And we're just trying to, yeah, improve the quality of, of medicines and, um, and improve the health outcomes for people. So you're a nonprofit. Who supports you? So we're funded by the Department of Health. So the government is got you, has, has you, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but the government funds you to monitor um, the systems of medicines or um, our doctors and what they're doing and how, who, what they're prescribing and how much they're prescribing. Do I have that correct? Um, I wouldn't say they get us to monitor it. Jane, do you want to kind of throw in some better language kind of around that? Yeah, no problems. Um, in 1998, there was a, a policy that was written in Australia called the National Medicines Policy, and um, that is is still current today. You can go online and, and read the detail in it. But essentially, that kind of said, in order to have good medicines use in Australia, we need four things. So um, people need to be able to access medicines in a timely way at a cost that they can afford. And so that kind of gave rise to a lot of funding for medicines in Australia. Um, they need to meet appropriate standards of quality, and so that was about really manufacturing. Uh, they need We need to have a, a responsible and viable medicines industry, so we need to work in concert with um, various players in the space to make sure that things always progress and move forward. And then the last kind of component was that we need quality use of medicines. And to kind of unpack that a little bit, it basically means that the right person gets the right medicine at the right time. And that's really important because um, given that Australia has a finite, finite resources and we have universal health care, it's really important that we're paying attention to that as it grows and as chronic disease becomes more common, but we're not losing sight of the fact that the right person needs the right medicine at the right time. And uh, it's really a luxury in Australia that we've got the role of, of trying to make that happen in healthcare because it's, it, on the global stage, it's pretty rare. Yes, most definitely. Um, so give us an idea of a day in the life of, of what the two of you do. Yeah, sure. Um, well, Jane would, is head of the design and innovation space here at NPS, and I work in the project management and, and change and communications area. So for me, we work... Um, in our educational programs as well as other um, as other areas but our big um, kind of day-to-day step would be in the educational program space so essentially what we do is we design and we build products and services um, based on you know different therapeutic areas so we've recently done a program around anxiety um, we're currently doing a program around um, opioids and we work with medical writers in our team, medical advisors, um, pharmacists, other external um, clinicians to develop um, education programs. And some of those are um, online learning platforms, clinical content products, and our visiting service where we actually go out and we meet with health professionals on a, either a one-to-one environment or in a small group. Um, setting. 
Um, and essentially what we do is we, Jane, do you want to talk a little bit about the design process itself? Um, yeah, sure. The, it's, I find this really interesting because um, with the programs that we deliver, you know, everybody goes to work and thinks that they do a great job and doctors are, are no exception. But it's really hard for doctors, given that they're treating one patient at a time, to get a global view of what they're doing well and what they're perhaps not doing so well. Um, and then when you layer that with the fact that there's just this crazy amount of evidence that comes out, um, people sometimes, well, not forget, but they're, they're not necessarily up to date with the new evidence. So from a design perspective, what I'm really interested in, and I've got a psychology background, is what actually drives the decision-making process for health professionals in various settings. So um, why might they decide to make a decision or perhaps, um, you know, not offer a particular type of care um, to a patient or, uh, you know, are they actually aware of the different alternative options that might exist for a particular uh, condition? And also from a consumer side, you know, what is driving perhaps consumers not necessarily getting as involved in their healthcare as they might, you know, they might. Um, and so from a design perspective, we'll actually go out and interview a whole range of people to understand what's going on there in that in that health professional consumer space, uh, what drives that. And then we pick the various things that Lisa was talking about in terms of whether it be online education or a visit or perhaps feeding back data to um, clinicians. We'll pick those various elements depending on what the, the problem is at hand. So we kind of match up the clinical problem with the, um, with the educational intervention that we're providing uh, to try and get the best impact and, and, um, and change that dynamic between the health professional and the consumer as much as uh, we can. It sounds like what you're doing is asking the right question because more often than not, we don't ask the right question and therefore we don't get the right answer. And it sounds like you're delving deep into, uh, you know, both sides of the equation, both the clinician as well as the, the patient. So can we address the anxiety? If that's what you're working on too, the opioids and the anxiety, if we can address both of those. But let's just first start with anxiety. Because last week we interviewed a soldier with um, post-traumatic um, stress disorder and what he had to go through to find help in order to get well. Um, so there are a lot of people and anxiety is all part of that, that mental illness that we're now seeing. And Karen is an absolute whiz at throwing statistics out there on mental illness and suicide because um, she just has been in that space for so long. So I'd love to hear what the design is around how are we managing this increase in mental illness, especially around anxiety, for both the clinician who's prescribing maybe anti-anxiety medications and the, the patient that goes to the clinician with 100%, you're going to fix me because I don't know what to do. I don't know what else to do. Great question. Um, the answer to that is multifaceted. I guess within our particular programs, we have looked at, uh, so the process that we go through with um, any of our given programs is, as I say, go out and interviewing a range of clinicians 
um, experts within the area, consumers and other um, allied health professionals. So, for example, within the anxiety program, we, of course, talked to psychologists and we had uh, a range of um, other mental health professionals that were involved in the development of the program. And there's a few questions that we weigh up when we're thinking about the design. Um, some of them are in relation to the evidence practice gaps. So, when you look at the data from end to end, when you look from fairly uh, um, low level, if you will, I say that in inverted commas, anxiety through to more uh, serious conditions like PTSD and OCD, whereabouts are you finding the largest evidence practice gaps? But weighing that up against where is the um, perhaps uh, uh, largest gap in relation to perhaps a a, there might be a smaller cohort of patients, but there's a larger quality of life issue that's occurring there. So we kind of look at that continuum and think about, so where should we be focusing, given that we can't necessarily focus on the end-to-end -end, uh, continuum? And so for the anxiety program, um, we were focusing on um, presentations of um, sometimes um, less severe anxiety that come into GPs, uh, and they can often get missed. So there's um, a stat that uh, anxiety is around 10 years before it's um, uh, diagnosed on average. Uh, and so within that particular program, what we're looking at is upskilling GPs around what are the avenues that they can choose that will actually address that kind of, um, that kind of issue and how do they ensure that the right patients are getting access to better care um, rather than necessarily reaching directly for the, the script pad, but um, also providing things like an entree into whether it be online um, CBT or other treatments that have actually shown to be quite evidence-based. So cognitive behaviour therapy, but they would just refer on, right? They wouldn't be necessarily uh, known to do that. So would their job be with these ones that are, you know, I don't know how you call that, lower anxiety. Um, it's so they refer on, just like they would refer on to a psychiatrist or they would refer on to a renal specialist, then their job would be to refer on. Is that where we're going here? It, it depends on, because we've got a, a national program, it would depend on even the GP our programs need to take into account the fact that we might be talking to a GP in a, in a quite a, a regional or remote area that may not have access to those kind of services right through to a GP that's going to be sitting in downtown Melbourne. Mm. Um, and so that it's actually quite difficult when you think about the design of a, a national program like that. So we quite often have a range of options and the visiting that Lisa was talking about before, the beauty of that is that one of our trained visitors can go into a practice and so they can then start to, um, I guess, massage the information to something that's more appropriate for that particular practice. Hmm. And I think that that's probably quite necessary because I'm imagining, you know, each doctor is going to have their own areas of speciality or their own areas that they see more of than others. Um, and you know, have, have their own way of, of dealing with it. What, what I'm interested in is, and obviously the psychology is my jam too, and I'm, I'm interested to know what would be, you know, like when you're putting a program together, no doubt you have to have an end result that you're aiming towards. When it comes to anxiety, what, what, is, the, what is the outcome you're hoping to achieve with the programs that you're offering? 
the evaluations are often uh, multifaceted. So they may have, if it's appropriate, they may have something like the reduction in the use of a particular medicine or the use of a particular, um, say, imaging test or something like that. But equally, we may have things like an increase in the number of general practitioners who use mental health care plans or the um, increase in um, certain uh, reported outcome measures by patients. So we, we tend to have things that are um, more quantitative in nature in terms of volume reductions in things, as well as qualitative. So we can understand if even if it's a program where one of the gaps is we've noticed that there's a, a new guideline coming in and GPs aren't necessarily aware of the uh, nuances of that, we might have an outcome that is the increase of knowledge in that particular area. So since 1998, since you, you guys started, quanti can you quantitate what you've saved the government in expenditure with the PBS and um, and the, and the use of like X-ray and imaging and whatever other things are out there, is it quantitative that what you are doing is working? Uh, yes, absolutely. There's an article, and I'm just looking it up so I can actually. Um, tell you the journal that it was in. Um, but recently we had an article published that is about um, the last 20 years of NPS and um, that goes through the exact figures but it's in the order of uh, $900 million in savings to the um, PBS which is the medicines um, mm -hmm. scheme and around um, $100, $150 million on the um, test side. So, so it's over get, $1 billion. Wow. So do you get bonuses? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Just wondering. Um, so going back to the anxiety, because you said, you know, what you were doing, and I'm thinking, well, you guys must be saving the government an absolute mozza by doing this. But let's just go back to anxiety. Why do you think anxiety is increasing, our resilience as a human population here in Australia is decreasing? Or do you think it's just something that we just never talked about? Ooh, I would I would probably uh, you know defer to the experts on that. Um, it, it, I think from the program, one of the things that's become very apparent is the need to ensure that we're constantly reviewing and providing access for GPs to the best possible way to um, address mental health conditions. If we look at the burden of disease, mental health conditions are you know, um, up in the top 10, uh, which wouldn't necessarily have been the case a number of years ago. And you might argue that that's because of an increased focus. You might argue that's because of an increased prevalence. Um, but I, I think for me, one of the things that I um, definitely observed through the development of that program is just how GPs are crying out um, for assistance in this area in terms of saying, we want to help. And we need the tools to, in order to do that, and particularly uh, GPs in areas like rural and remote Australia where it's not as easy to get access to, to good services. Yeah, and then they become, you know, the, the be-all for everybody and that then overburdens them and then they become, you know, then they start to have issues. So I, I understand that. So you've been going since 1998. No doubt you would have been part of the whole thing that came about, and I can't even remember when it happened with antibiotics and that we were over-prescribing antibiotics. Am I, am I right in saying that? 
because I'd like to ask you some questions on that one. Um, most definitely, the, the the rate of overprescription is something that's debated in the community, but but definitely, antibiotic stewardship is an issue that's really important in Australia. So, what did you design, and how did you design that in order to, you know, let our prescribing doctors um, know that we need to look at how many prescriptions were being um, penned um, each year for. Like for something that we know is starting to cause problems with the microbiome and in turn then causes mental illness. Um, there is a link between those two. So how did we start that conversation and what was the design that you created in order to um, roll this out? Okay, so they've, it, we've, we've done a lot of work on antibiotics over the years. Um, so I'm just trying to think at the, the point at which I start. Um, in, in short, we've done a lot of talking to people in this area. So before I was saying that we go out and we interview people, we've done an inordinate amount of work um, in trying to understand what's actually happening in the environment in various care settings because, of course, uh, there is um, the issue that, that might happen in primary care and that's very different in this space to the issue that might happen in, in a tertiary care setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what we keep coming back to here is this um, dynamic around uh, the consumer drive to get antibiotics and perhaps some um, health literacy work that could occur within the general community. And that kind of rammed up against um, the uh, the general practitioner. Um, I'll use primary care as an example because that's where we've done the most work. Um, the general practitioner who on average knows the that they shouldn't be prescribing antibiotics and would like some additional help um, in order to be able to say no. Um, And so we've done a lot of work in trying to kind of get into that space around um, can we produce things like consumer decision aids that uh, provide uh, the GP with a structured way to talk to a consumer and to be able to kind of outline the benefits and harms of actually uh, getting an antibiotic prescribed. But we've also looked at the literacy component for consumers at large and we've done a whole range of different ad campaigns which have really tried to drive at this idea of um, the fact that antibiotics are a valuable resource, that they do have their place but they have a a specific place and we need to kind of be able to get back to using them in the right way for the right purposes. What do the pharmaceutical companies think about this? I mean, I know this is quite probably a controversial thing to say, but given that the pharmaceutical companies obviously depend on doctors prescribing their drugs um, and potentially now we're, you know, educating our doctors on other options, what's their stand on this? Um, I I would have to defer to an organisation like Medicines Australia um, to hear their um, their stance. Um, in our work, we uh, uh, go ahead and we do a lot of work that is, um, you know, we, we don't have barriers put in our way in relation to the work that we do. So our independent nature is, um, you know, is protected. Mm. Um, and uh, we... I'd imagine it'd have to be, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd have to be completely independent and unbiased. Yeah, so we tend to kind of just not engage in that in that part to be able to kind of with our departmental programs to be able to put those together in a way where we're really focused on the evidence practice gaps and we just go where we need to. That makes sense. Mm. Wow, I think that's amazing. <laughs> so what about 
the opioid issues that are now, um, we know everybody's talking about it. Um, there's addictions happening. What, what is happening in, in that realm now? What did you, you discover in your research and what is the design that is, um, you know, to not only help the practitioner but also help the people that are now addicted to these painkillers? Mm. Yeah, opioids is a, um, you know, just such a uh, all-encompassing topic at the moment. Um, there's been a lot of work that we've done uh, to really understand how to engage here in the communication patterns between um, GPs and consumers uh, because, again, this is an area where it's not a knowledge gap for GPs. GPs are aware of the opioid epidemic. Um, they're, they're definitely aware of the guidelines and, um, you know, there are some minutiae within the guidelines that, that we try to help with in terms of, you know, how you might, for example, um, titrate, titrate down a medicine. Um, but in terms of the, the design process, that was really about... Um, putting a lot of uh, consumers and, and GPs and pain specialists in a room all together and kind of really focusing on what can we do here that's going to make a difference. And this is a really big topic. So how can we actually work with other stakeholders in the, the environment that are doing other, you know, in charge of other pieces of the puzzle? Um, and how can we add to those efforts rather than kind of try to uh, uh, compete because it's a very busy space? Um, and so that was a, a, a tricky one and a really rewarding program to work on the design for because of being able to work so closely with consumers and uh, health professionals and also um, other people that are, that are, you know, focused on this area. So when you're finding that there is a, a doctor out there or a prescriber out there that is perhaps prescribing more of, of these medications, how do you approach them? You know, and what is it like to approach them? Are they, are they thankful or, or do you do it in a group session or a single session? Um, uh, or are they, do they have their backs up and just thinking, stay out of my business, I'm doing the best I can? How, do, how does that work? It's it's a bit of a mixed bag, you know. As as with any group of people, you get people that are really receptive and those that are less receptive. Um, I think the one of the key components for us is to realise that you know that notion that I was talking about before of nobody goes to work to deliberately do a bad job, um, and it's the same with with uh, doctors that because there's treatment of one patient at a time, sometimes it can be really hard to get a global picture of what you're doing. And so when when we um, go in, we have one program where um, uh, we uh, report back on data to clinicians. Um, and what we try to do is do that in a group setting. So therefore, normally in a group, what you'll find is there's, you know, there might be people that are perhaps, um, you know, could, could reflect on their practice a little, but there's normally some people that are doing a really fantastic job. And so what we do is flip it and try to focus on those people. So we try to focus on, you know, look at this amazing performance, what are you doing in your in your practice and how do you talk to your patients and, you know, what? how do you make those decisions that mean that uh, your practice is looking like that? Um, and we find that, that, that when we train our um, visiting 
educational visitors like that, uh, they say that generally they can draw into the conversation the the people that perhaps could reflect on their practice. Um, and you generally get a great peer conversation going where, where people feel a little bit safer and feel um, able to be vulnerable and, and take, uh, take um, reflection from that. I just want you to know, Jane, you probably wouldn't want to employ me. I probably wouldn't have the tact. <laughs> I just I, I just find, I just want to get straight to the point, what is the issue, what do we need to do, um, and could we use diet? You know, because that's my, my love. And do you, do you have that as part of your design processes? Are we looking at lifestyle? Are we looking at um, diet? Are we looking at, you know, now we're seeing that emotional freedom technique is working and uh, and working even better than cognitive behavioural therapy. Uh, are these things being looked at? And then if you do tell this to um, our very conservative doctors, do they look at you as though you've turned wacky? <laughs> just just interested in that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's... I, I love that the evidence in this area is becoming stronger and stronger. So I'll use an example of a, a low back pain program that we rolled out. Um, it's just finished in field. So the design of this would have been um, over a year ago. But there's much stronger evidence that's occurring around um, uh, what they call yellow flags. So this is looking at the psychosocial factors of patients where um, a GP can actually do a bit of an assessment and potentially identify people that are more likely to develop chronic pain and then provide appropriate kind of counselling to that patient. And so, you know, that whole program was about you actually don't need an image for your low back pain on average, um, but uh, GPs don't forget that you actually need to take into account the whole human um, and these are the people that you might want to provide extra support for and this is how you might want to get them as active as possible as early as possible. So um, it's it's really kind of looking at the the, the consumer as a, as a human rather than somebody to be kind of provided a medicine or zapped or scanned or whatever. Um, so it's, it's about... Um, identifying, I, I'm trying to figure this out, what you just said. So it's about identifying a person um, that may present with low back pain. Is that what you said or does present with low back pain and they, they don't need to be on pain meds but on something else and to do exercise? Is that what you're you said there? Yeah, absolutely. So that particular yes. low back pain program had three um, components to it. One was that if somebody presents with non-specific low back pain, um, there are certain flags that mean that they should get an image. But other than that, um, you know, the person can be diagnosed uh, appropriately through um, history taking. Uh, the second message was around um, to take into account various psychosocial factors that the patient presents with that may indicate that they're more likely to develop a chronic long-term pain. Um, and so they're things like um, um, catastrophizing the issue and, and things like that that you really only get from a conversation with someone. Um, and then the third area was about um, returning to normal activity and work as soon as possible because that's one of the, the best indicators of, um, uh, of long-term outcomes. I love how you think and how you have created these designs. One of, one of the things that I'd, I'd like to um, give you an N equals one, you know, I know that that's not a research project, but I'm going to give you an N equals one. So um, towards my early 50s, I started to get 
low back pain. It was constant. It was it was low low back pain. You know, it wasn't um, debilitating. Except when I'd walk, I'd have to stretch my um, stretch my back out probably every couple of kilometers, and then I'd walk again. I couldn't stand for long periods of time without it aching. So <clears throat> this was happening over a two year period, but. Me, being the person who has been told by, you know, my family is that, you know, your body has a way to heal itself and there's a reason why it is. And I was brought up in a chiropractic household, so adjustments were were part of it. And structurally, if you looked at my back, it, it wasn't that bad. So what was causing that low back pain? Well, it wasn't until I did an elimination diet and I took myself off um, wheat, believe it or not, um, that my low back pain completely disappeared, like within a 10-day period. So, and I'm not the only one that says things like this, and it's not the only food that causes inflammation and irritation. So why are we not talking more about food and what is happening to our food supply in these designs and, um, and talking about the importance of going back to you know, that type of um, old-fashioned medicine. Like Hippocrates said, let food be thy medicine and, and medicine be thy food. Why is that? I haven't heard you say that in the design. Can, can you explain, does it go into the design or it's just not even spoken about? Are we, are we not doing this? Um, I'm trying to be more general in the way that I um, talk about design rather than kind of getting into the specifics oh. of a program. So, so sorry about that. But the um, it, it, a topic, um, for example, on uh, proton pump inhibitors. So they're a medicine that um, basically kind of makes your tummy feel better um, if you've had too much pasta and red wine. Um, or indigestion. And- <laughs> <laughs> and um, there, there's a lot of use of, of PPIs in Australia and um, some of that is is due to uh, legitimate reasons and then there are other people that perhaps it is a lifestyle factor um, that uh, is causing um, uh, the use of PPIs. And so in a program like that, we would absolutely talk about um, you know, some of, as you, as you say, kind of more old-fashioned um, approaches uh, where it's about um, GPs then counselling patients around diet and exercise. Some of the things that we don't necessarily do is go into the specifics around diet. And again, that's more about the national um, program nature. Um, so uh, in terms of um, providing information that's going to be used by 30,000 GPs across Australia, um, we try to be uh, more general in advice to ensure that we're kind of getting more of that message through, but still provide um, hooks for people. So if they're wanting to go and seek more information, we would most definitely provide, um, you know, evidence-based information so that GPs can then extend their education beyond the program that we offer. And are many interested in in that, uh, in looking at, because they're not like I, I have a bunch of friends who are medics and they're not even taught a week of nutrition in their whole six years at university. And then it's obviously not a priority in the hospitals because of the way the hospital food is. And it, it's such a, oh, what's the word? Um, you know, it's a disconnect to the patient because the patient's looking at the, the food that they're giving. And even if we go into the old people's, you know, people that are in retirement villages, I have a friend who works in the kitchen and she says the food's disgusting. 
So are our GPs even interested in looking at, you know, looking at food as maybe a major um, problem that is, you know, really affecting the health of Australian people, especially when you look at um, how our food is produced, um, you know, what's in it, the additives. Um, most definitely, I would say that um, areas around mental health, nutrition and uh, physical activity are areas that GPs are um, you know, often asking for more information on. And that's because, as you say, there is there may be a limited scope of training, um, you know, within that they've undertaken within their medical degree or their, um, you know, training to become a GP. And so, uh, you know, good diet and exercise and um, appropriate mental health and what's going to be uh, uh, successful for patients is something that we quite often um, get queries for. Can I have some extension information? So because of that, they're the areas that we tend to say, and here's all the information for those people that are interested. Mm. And do you send them to the dietary guidelines? Uh, we would, depending on what the topic is, we would most definitely send them to appropriate um, diet exercise or um, psychological information for good mental health techniques. Jane, I, I have to tell you, you have the most amazing voice and you are the most diplomatic speaker I think I have had on the show. Karen, would you agree Hands with that? down. <laughs> Hands down. Yeah. I'm listening Incredible. to every word and I'm almost hypnotised. It's like this voice that is so um, full of richness mm. <laughs> and so much depth but also, as you say, Cindy, so diplomatic. Mm. Like just you've obviously, know, and I don't know, it'll just come out, but you've obviously been asked questions like this before where you've, um, have you been asked questions like this before? Um, some of them, some of them, not necessarily. People are quite interested in what we do and I, I find it quite difficult to put it in a nutshell because every program has similarities but they're also so unique and individual in their scope as, as I'm sure you could imagine because the clinical topics um, and the psychological drivers behind the actors in them are so different. Uh, you know, talking to, I remember um, a few years ago we had a, um, a chronic pain program that was also focused on opioids and this was probably three years ago and listening to some of the um, health professionals talk about the way that they engaged with consumers and um, some of the difficulty that they had in terms of really wanting to help consumers and saying that, you know, these people are in pain and an opioid is the last, you know, the last treatment and I, I need to be able to help them. And just the, um, you know, the, not I wouldn't call it anguish, but just the desire to really help their patients. It's, it's quite a, um, an amazing thing to kind of talk to health professionals and consumers and really get under the bonnet of what they're going through when they make particular decisions. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel very lucky to do this job. Mm. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I, I, just, I just find it incredible how you think and... Um, because I, I, I guess I look superficially, but you're obviously, yeah, I look at the, the, the duco of the car, 
you're right in there really understanding the mechanics of what is happening and I find that so inspiring and you know we need more and more talent like you doing that so that we can in my way of thinking improve the health of the Australian people uh, and and, and, and that's what I find really frustrating is that as a nation, we might be getting more intelligent as far as our knowledge and our science background. But as a people, we're becoming sicker and sicker. Our children are sick. Our adults are sick. Our elderly have dementia and Alzheimer's. And I don't know where the answer lays. And I want you to get under that, get a little bit deeper into the mechanics. And yeah, is there, is there an easy solution to this? Is there, it's, I find it really frustrating because I think surely there's got to be something out there. Like somebody said, if you were Prime Minister, Cindy, what would you do? And I said, I'd wipe out all supermarkets <laughs> and I would bring in fresh food and have only fresh food and you had to get back into the kitchen to feed and nourish your family because that's my focus. And Karen Karen, what would your thing be if you could be Prime Minister? What would, what would you do? If you could do a wide-sweeping thing, what would it be? Mm, mm, mm. Yes, I see the question. Mm, mm. Well, I, if, you know, well, I, well, I, my, well, my response won't really apply to this podcast, though, because I would just wipe out anybody who's cruel to an animal. That's just, I'd take them out. That's what I would probably do. <laughs> All right. That's what I asked ask that question. Jane, what would you do? And then we can ask you, Lisa, so be prepared. <laughs> I am sweating over here. <laughs> Jane, what, what would you do if you could, if you were Prime Minister of Australia and you could do something that you felt would be the defining thing we could do, what, what would it be? Um, if, I, if I'm talking from a very personal perspective and not talking from an NPS medicine-wise perspective, I would say um, the the balancing of the individual within the healthcare system with the needs of the system. So when I think about uh, experiences like the birth of my first child or things like that where where I was a consumer of healthcare or, or going through an IVF process where I was a consumer of healthcare, I could see really clearly that there was this dichotomy of me as an individual with my own wants and needs wanting to participate in the system and then the needs of the system to, to be able to run effectively and at a cost that, you know, the taxpayer could bear. And they those things were quite often in competition. So, you know, I wanted particular birth preferences, but, you know, the next patient was coming through the door and they needed the room, so they needed me to be faster, you know, those, those sorts of things. So, you know, if I could balance those two things, I, you know, that's what i do. Wow. Jane for Prime Minister. Mm. All right, Lisa, what, what would you do? What would, what would your thing be if you were Prime Minister? And, that, and, and it doesn't, you can be like Karen, that she just would get, how are you going to get rid of them, Karen? That's what I want to know. Cindy, I've seen it. I've got a plan. I've worked it out. Okay. <laughs> Lisa, what would you do? Um, I think for me and the more that I'm learning through the Nutrition Academy, it would be looking at education. Um, because I think there's just so much information and it's so confusing for people and I just don't think they know where to start. And so I think for me, I would be looking at how do we educate young people through schools? Um, 
and really focusing and looking, you know, to, to educating, you know, moms, um, about real food and the importance of real food because we can't control everything in life, but we can control what goes on in our homes. And, you know, we look at escalation of, you know, diabetes um, and obesity in children. I just think we need to do something about that. So for me, I'd be looking at how we're educating and, and working with, um, with our children. And you know what? That's probably the defining point that we probably need to go to for all of us is it's about education about animals. It's about education about um, at the food that we consume. It's about education about the system and not just the the medical system, but the financial system, Um, you know, even religion and things like that. It's about that education from a grassroots level. I, I remember somebody saying to me one day, how are we going to, uh, change what's happening in the streets if we can't, I mean, in the home, in the, oh, no, in the streets, that's right. How can we fix what's happening in the streets if we can't even fix the problem in the home? And that could be anger, um, that could be the food we're consuming, the medications that we're popping. And so how do we solve the drug problem in the streets if we can't even solve the drug problem in the home um, that is being perpetuated? And it is an education that we all need that it's just not happening. So um, I know that question was probably out of the box, but I just felt that um, we all have different views on how we could fix the system and that's probably why you guys exist today is that you are getting under the bonnet and understanding exactly what's happening in the system and then designing programs that can help both the, the consumer and the, um, the system. So... I want to congratulate you both. I know, Lisa, you haven't said a lot, but you said a hell of a lot to me at the summit and it really, really got me excited about what you, you do. And yeah. and yeah, Look, and that's why it was important for me to have Jane here because Jane has the exper- um, experience with, um, you know, how we choose programs, how we design programs, you know, the impact, you know, that we want to see. And I think it's it's really important because I... I look at it now and I think, you know, for people, there's more treatment options for things now than we've ever seen before. Mm. And it's confusing. And it's, you know, I, I guess I think it's the same as food, you know, with more choice comes more confusion. And so I look at, you know, NPS medicine wise, their role is really to try to, I guess, get through some of that confusion and provide, you know, the evidence around these technologies and these, and these medicines so that, people can make the best choice out there um, because it's not, it's not easy. Yeah, you're right. And do you know what I, I is really, really made me realise about those choices? So I'm fairly educated when it comes to health and, and wellness and nutrition. I, that's, that's, my education is there. But I'm not when it comes to agricultural principles. You know, and four years ago, um, you'll like this, Jane, but four years ago I bought a farm and I put some animals on it and I put some trees on it. And my trees aren't doing very well. My animals are doing amazing. They're healthy. They're happy. They are just thriving. You know, I lose an occasional animal at times to old age, but they are thriving. But my plants don't want to grow. And so... I've had three different consultants out telling me three different things as to why they're not growing. So then I'm confused. 
you know, is it all three? Is it only one? Do I do one? They're all going to cost me. Which one do I do? So um, I hear you, Lisa. It's, it is, it, it's, it's about education and what you guys are doing is, is creating that. So I want to, um, you know, commend you. I didn't even know you guys existed. I didn't know that the government had um, this association that they funded in order to improve um, what's happening with our clients and with our system. So thank you. We, we hide our light under a bushel. Um, and and also, like I think it's really important, Cindy. The the point that you were making about you know your farm is that you're you're taking the first step in terms of asking the questions, mm-hmm. um, like you were saying earlier. And I think we have a a, a separate um, program that we um, provide support to, which is called Choosing Wisely. And this program is actually it's a, a social movement about getting clinicians on board and creating the change themselves. And it's about the, the heading choosing wisely is about choosing to participate in interventions like medicines or tests when there's evidence for them. And so part of that is um, helping clinicians, uh, sorry, helping consumers by giving them five really easy questions to ask about healthcare. Um, and it's on the, the Choosing Wisely website, but it's things like, do I really need this test or procedure or medicine? Uh, what are the risks? Are there simpler and safer options for me? Um, what happens if I don't do anything at all? And what are the costs? And they're just, you know, five really simple questions that a consumer can be empowered to ask. Um, you know, I've, I've got my mum of, of 69 to start asking them to her, um, her doctor. And it just is the, the start of a conversation that we need to have between health professionals and consumers to ensure that, you know, people are getting the right tests at the right time. They're, they're great questions. They're absolutely incredible questions. So for the website, it's choosingwisely.org.au. Good. I'll put that on the show notes so people have those. I um, did a bunch of questions for, um, I can't remember, it wasn't for the education program, but um, many years ago about cholesterol because there were many questions around the whole statin thing. Have you guys done anything on the statins and the amount that was being prescribed? Yeah, yeah, we have. Yeah, so I wrote a bunch of questions about it uh, to ask your doctor, and it was some of them were those questions, but other others were, um, you know, is cholesterol a really good indicator of heart disease? And you know, the more we realise about it, the more we're realising that even the calcium score or ferritin, um, the amount of ferritin that we have in our system, is a better indication of, of heart disease. So. I reckon those questions are brilliant and I'm going to grab them from there and I'll make sure I put them on the show notes so that everybody has them because sometimes you don't know what questions to ask, especially when you, like for me, and I'm going back to the agriculture, I I didn't think to ask the man that said that I didn't have enough water, but what is the nutrition okay? And the man that said the nutrition was okay, but what about the water? Or, um, and the other one was you got too much grass up against them and they need more nitrogen. (laughs) It's like, I didn't know what questions to ask. Yeah. And I think too, Cindy, there's that element of, um, you know, intimidation when you're sitting there and there's somebody, I don't know, I know for me in my experience, um, you know, spending some time in hospital with my son and you're there with somebody and, you know, they've got the white coat and they have this aura about them and you just think like, it's almost intimidating to ask a question or you feel stupid to ask a question or like that. You kind of don't know where, where to start. 
So it's always nice to have something to, to kind of start from that you can, it's just a bit of a guide really to give you that empowerment or that um, confidence, I suppose, to, to have, to have a conversation. And they are simple questions. They're not, they're not, not hard. Answered. Yeah. No. no. They're brilliant. They're brilliant. As we come to the end of this amazing podcast, and I'm going to listen to it again, Jane, because, um, and the reason I'm going to listen to it is that it, the way you speak and how you say things, I want to see if I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> you are good. Oh, she's so good. She's so good. And then to listen to your accent. I love your accent, Lisa. Oh, thanks. Um, but <laughs> as we come to the end of it, do either of you have any words um, of wisdom or that you would like to impart on our listeners as clients in a system that you have looked under the hood of? For me, it would be don't be afraid to ask the question. That's a good quote too. Mm. Yeah, look, I have to say I'm with, with Jane on that. You know, don't be afraid to ask the question. There is no stupid question. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess it comes back to, you know, we are all accountable for our own health at the end of the day. Um, and we, you know, it's good to to be aware of that and just be, yeah, not, don't be afraid. Mm, I love I it. I think that's invaluable, isn't it? Definitely. I've learned oh. heaps. <laughs> oh, same. Um, and it brings to mind, I went to see a doctor to get a whole bunch of tests done just to try and find out a couple of things that was happening. And in the end, I landed up telling the doctor that he was really bad at his job. <laughs> <laughs> nice, Karen, nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did. I, I said to him, you know, I really think you really need to reconsider what you do. I said, because you really suck at it. <laughs> it was just out of absolute frustration. And I think, you know, sometimes taking your own health into your own hands means finding the right help and, you know, continuing to stay in the question. If you know intuitively that there's something that needs investigating, don't be afraid to keep looking because I think by us doing that, and I'm looking at it from a consumer's point of view, by us doing that, it then helps the medical profession to know the gaps that they need to fill. Um, you know, whereas if we just stay at the mercy of, you know, the constant search for antibiotics, then I don't think that we're being very responsible and we're not participating in the solution. And I think that together we can get somewhere. But if we hand our responsibility over and expect that somebody else is going to take responsibility for us, um, you know, and I think everything has its place, but I think we need to be participative. We need to you know, I think we need we need to do that. So that's, that's just my thought. There's my 10 cents worth. But this has been an amazing podcast. Thank you, girls. Pleasure. You're welcome. So for all of our listeners, no doubt you guys are going to want to go back and listen to this podcast as well, as both Cindy and I certainly will. So make sure that you head on over to our Facebook page at all the w's.facebook.com forward slash up for a chat. And you can also head on over to all the w's.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash up for a chat. Most importantly, as always, make sure that you tune in next week right here on Up for a Chat where you get to become part of the ripple effect, 
that's changing this world we live in. We are going to see you on the ride. Bye for now, everybody. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.